This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Men of the Compass, and the author is DJ Ruckman, and DJ joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, DJ. Good morning, Steve. Well, you're going to take us back into the very, very early days of sailing and these kinds of adventurers that are wandering around the world, discovering new lands, and we're going to talk about this compass that... I guess today we kind of take that for granted. Not many of us know really about the significance of the compass, but your your story, a fiction story, kind of revolves around that in Ireland. And, and uh, as you see, a, an important part that Ireland played in discovering the world. Yes, the uh, compass was discovered in about 450 B.C. by the Chinese, but it lacked about 1,500 years before it showed up in English sailing ships in about 1100 A.D. The Roman Brits uh, and the basically the civilized world did not have it. The Norse Irish peoples definitely were legend had they had it and that they used it to uh, sail in foggy weather when uh, no one else could uh, then uh, follow them wherever they went because they had a crude compass. So there's really, there's real factual history in your book, but you've taken some uh, literary license and doing your fictional approach to this as well. Yes, we uh, always do that. None of us were there in 450 uh, in Ireland, uh, but I set the book in 450 in Ireland and uh, created some fictional characters and some um, uh, heroes and heroines and uh, bad guys and good guys that sort of thing, to kind of twist it around this whole story of the compass and uh, the uh, Romans wanting to get the compass if they can, uh, and it's a neat story. Well, tell us about, let's start off with who you would say is the main hero. main hero is, is a young man who is a second son, and as you're aware of in most of the uh, civilized world, the second son, third son, fourth sons never inherited the estate. Uh, so the second son is forced to dream of where he can go uh, and find his place in the world because the first son is going to inherit the father's holdings. And so the second son uh, dreams of sailing to the legendary Newfoundland, which is the land across the sea, uh, which was uh, talked about uh, in legends in, in Ireland prior to this time. And what is his name? His name is Thaden. Spell that. T-H-A-D-O-N. Gaden? Faden, T-H-A-D-O-N. Oh, P-H-A-D-O-N. Okay. Faden, all right. And uh, now he also has, obviously, friends and allies. Any one uh, or two characters that really uh, strengthen him and help him? Yes, due to basically the Christian religion coming into Britain at that, that particular time, the uh, Druids and uh, the people that were considered pagans were driven out of England. Um, one of my heroes is Dante, uh, formerly named Cal Cullen. He is a Druid that uh, was forced out of England, and, and he winds up in Ireland. 
and he allies himself with Thaden. Uh, Dante has the magic compass, and he uses that to uh, help the Irish peoples in their struggles. And Thaden uh, and he conspire then to build ships to sail to Newfoundland, which we, of course, know as the northeast uh, corner of uh, the New World, basically uh, Canada and America. So the real factual historical significance back then that there were people, obviously, uh, we know that there were early, early adventurers back uh, well before the time of Christ who, like Marco Polo, go into China. And is he the one that discovered the compass in the first place? No, he actually brought it out of China way later. Uh, uh, this was much later uh, in time uh, than this story is, when Polo uh, brought it back into uh, the Italians. And the Italians then, of course, being the Romans, eventually wound up in England with it. Uh, but uh, no, Marco Polo didn't discover it. The Chinese did in about 450 B.C. But you, you talk about the magic compass. Now, why did you say magic compass? Well, anything that was not really understood how it worked uh, was considered magic. Uh, it was considered uh, by those that uh, didn't understand, obviously, as something very magical because in this particular case, uh, it's magnetite, basically, that's a naturally occurring magnetic material that when it's struck by lightning becomes polarized. If you slice off a piece of that and you slide it into a cork and float it in a bowl of water, it will orient itself north-south every time, somewhat mystically and somewhat magically. And hence the compass was born, and it was then used uh, by the Chinese very early on. The Chinese decided to basically withdraw unto themselves, of course, uh, and didn't share a lot of that until uh, Marco Polo brought that out of China uh, later on in, in time to the Italians. So in your story, the Irish have the compass, and of course that gives them a lot of power because the others don't have it. Correct. They can sail in foggy weather, and, and the Irish and the Norse peoples basically were combined on the island. Ireland, Ireland is a melting pot of different peoples, and the uh, story is that the Norse people also had a crude compass, and they then used that basically to help them guide their ships through the constant foggy weather that was always in the North Sea. And the uh, gist of it is, is that they could sail in, they could raid against Roman Britain, and then they could sail away in fogging weather knowing that the Romans didn't have the compass and could not chase them through the fog. The, no the Norse people being also called the Vikings? Well, they weren't called the Vikings until about 800, which is later on. They became very, very, very notorious about that particular time and uh, hence became the, the Norse Raiders, the Vikings, later on. This is set in, in about 400 years before that uh, where basically there are uh, those peoples in Ireland also with numerous, numerous peoples that, that uh, sailed away from places like Spain and all the torment that was going on in Europe at that time and they wound up in Ireland, hence all the different clans that are in, in Ireland today. Let's talk about the antagonist, uh, the enemy of Phaedon and Dante. Now, the antagonist is a, is a rogue druid named Malrock who had been banned from the Druidic order by Dante and who swore vengeance against Dante. 
he convinces the Romans that he can acquire this compass, and so uh, and they don't really like falling in league with him, but they fall in league with him because he can possibly deliver this compass. He comes then to Ireland, and he then, as a healer, poses himself as a healer, but instead poisons the overlord, Eric, who is the father of Thane and Thane, Thane being the oldest son. Uh, Thane then falls under the mind control of Malrock, who pits Thane uh, and Thane against each other uh, so that the Irish can be fighting among themselves and therefore de defeat themselves, so making it easy for the Romans then to sail in and take over their area of the island and possibly capture the compass. So Malrock is the bad guy, and he basically uh, schemes to plot the two brothers against each other in the story, uh, and it, that, that is working, basically. Thaden leaves, <clears throat> and then he bands together with some men and come back to fight uh, for his brother and fight against the tyranny that's happening. And during this fight, they discover that the uh, Malrock has plotted with the Romans and that the Romans are lying in wait offshore to come in once the Irish all fight each other and disseminate their ranks, then it'll make it easy for the Romans to come in. The two brothers discover this, and Thane um, comes back together with Thaden, and together then they fight the Romans off. Now this is a first book in a series that you're going to do set around this, this magical compass. Yes, I, I have two other books in the work about it. Um, having spent 40 years solving land mysteries and puzzles that are associated with uh, compass bearings and compass descriptions and things, it's always been a, uh, uh, a historical journey for me uh, of researching things about uh, property and, and, and how we basically evolved as a society and the implication of how the compass basically uh, impacted our lives. It's one of the greatest discoveries uh, of the world, but yet not very well celebrated. It's taken for granted because it's so simple, really. Uh, we all understand that the Earth has magnetic poles and that it has a detraction, and certain materials, if they're magnetized, uh, have an attraction then to north, thereby we can guide ships, we can guide our airplanes, we can guide our GPS systems, we can guide almost everything because of the magnetic polarity of the planet. So the compass played a huge role in evolving to where we are today as a society. And of course, your fascination with it, like you say, your profession, 35 years as a land surveyor, uh, you understand the significance. Well, somewhat, uh, and also the varieties that, that go with it and, and the things and the, some of the problems associated with it. And so this story that we've said in Ireland is kind of the very beginning of when the early compass was used. It was not used, obviously, for land purposes. That didn't happen until Paris in about 1700 when the first surveys were done with compasses. But it was used for guiding ships. And uh, so my, my story here set in Ireland is about uh, the early voyagers and the possibilities that they were able to sail to America uh, and, and, and land here and, and, and intermingle with the tribes that were already here in North America. So does your book take us to America as well as in this battle between the Romans and the Irish? Not yet. My second book will, or the third book, will do that. We're actually going to bring them to America 
uh, and unfortunately, I'll probably have to shipwreck them so that they don't <laughs> make it back. Because if they made it back, they would have told the story. Ah. Uh, but that, that is the gist of it. We have many legends here. One of the things that we have uh, here in our area of the world is on the Ohio River, we have an, a stone fort that's the only stone fort that was built in North America, and no one knows the history of that stone fort, albeit most stone masons were out of European descent. Uh, but we had a stone fort here that was tore down basically in 1894 by the Big Four Bridge Company. It now stands in the middle of the Ohio River supporting the railroad bridge, the remains of that fort. But it was well documented by W.W. W. Borden in 1870. He was assistant state geologist at that time, and he drew drawings of the 70-foot high walls around this stone fort there at Devil's uh, Backbone at 14 Mile Creek on the Ohio River. And so we don't know who built that fort, but it was possibly European descendants that would have come to America and would have erected stone fortifications. Now, do we have any female heroes or female antagonists in your book? Well, Thaden falls in love, and uh, his lady is becomes a pawn in the story because Malrock sends men to try to capture Thaden or some of his family members, and they wind up capturing uh, Shannon, his girlfriend, his love, and uh, it's a fight for, for Thaden then to, to track down these men who have... Uh, stolen uh, Shannon to blackmail him to bring the compass to Malrock, uh, which he does eventually uh, catch the men and freeze Shannon. Uh, so we have some romance in it, as well as uh, the bad guy, good guy things. And then do we have uh, serious battle scenes described in detail as well? Well, I did not belabor that too much. I think that's been done numerous, numerous times by other authors, so I simply show conflicts that occurred and battles that occurred and how they were basically won uh, by splitting forces. Uh, the Romans always attacked pretty much in a wedge against the force in front of them, and they were unstoppable as a shield wedge. But if you split your forces and come in from behind them in more than one front, then you had a chance to break their wedge apart. And that's what Dante and Thaden and do. They, they split their forces and let the Romans attack what they think is the main body. And then they, they come in from different sides and they split the Romans up, thereby uh, breaking down their shield wall and driving them back to the sea. So your focus is really on the character development. It's a story, it's an age-old story about uh, the conflicts between brothers, the conflicts of good and bad conflicts of um, revenge, the conflicts of trying to acquire something somebody else has that you want, and then the eventual coming back together of the brothers when they realize that there's a common enemy that's going to destroy them all, and they, they should come back together, they should uh, forego their differences and fight for their commonalities. Well, it sounds like a fascinating story. It sounds like a uh, movie script. Well, that would be a glorious uh, way to tell that story. And so you should send this to Walt Disney. They could do it a really neat story. There you go. Well, DJ, we really appreciate you sharing this with us on Author Talk. Tell us how to get your book. Uh, basically, it is available at uh, authorhouse.com. Uh, and you type in Men of the Compass, DJ Ruckman. It'll come up. It's available in hardback and softback and also the new electronic format which is really uh, growing tremendously for the first time in author history. 
electronic books are available, uh, and that, that makes it uh, more profitable, a better uh, venue basically for uh, aspiring authors to actually be able to uh, pay them back for all the efforts that they've got in, in trying to publish a book and a story. And do you have a website? Yes, uh, we have a website that's being set up for Men of the Compass. Uh, that's, we're working on that now to set that up, uh, and it would be available through that also. Well, thank you very much, DJ. We appreciate learning about Men of the Compass by DJ Ruckman. Thanks for again for being on Author Talk. Thank you, Steve. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. It's the chance for you to hear firsthand from authors on why they write their books in their own words. It's called iUniverse Radio, hosted by Steve Jorgensen every Saturday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 3 Central on TogiNet Radio. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio, every Saturday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 3 Central on TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge. What's your story? Are you living it? Well, you could be. It's What's Your Story with Hillary Bilbrey. Friday mornings at 10 Eastern, 9 a.m. Central on Toginet.com. Her passion is helping others discover, create, and live their personal brands. Yep, you heard me. You have a brand. No different than Coke, Pepsi, or Nike. You are a walking, talking, living, breathing brand. You're not a logo. You're not a tagline. The choices you make become the path you take. This is your brand. Now, live your story. Your brand is not just what you say it is. It's also what others say it is. So what are you communicating? And how can you create an authentic brand? We'll take on these challenges with What's Your Story? Every week, Hillary will feature teens, moms, and organizations that are learning and living their story. Now, her passion is to help others discover, create, and live their personal brands. To find out more, go to inspiredbyfamily.com. It's What's Your Story with Hillary Bilbrey. Friday mornings at 10 Eastern, 9 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, The Hidden Face of Laura. And the author is Elaine Mims, and Elaine joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Elaine. Good morning. Good to have you with us now. What we're going to do, first of all, is I'm going to read a little bit from your introduction of your book, The Hidden Face of Laura. Uh, this is very serious uh, subject. Uh, we're dealing with uh, the experience of child abuse and also the effects of child abuse. Uh, this is what you say. Sometimes the trials we face each day can be overwhelming, especially when a child is involved. A child may be neglected or in an abusive situation. Not all children have a loving family or live in a nice house. Currently, abuse is at an all-time high and occurs in more than half of our population. You would think after childhood a person would be more in control of their life, but we never outgrow the reality of abuse. Many people are uneducated on the matter, and children are often afraid to speak out. This is what happened with Laura May Miller. 
Well, that's very uh, targeted and right to the point. Uh, This is a very tragic part of society today. Why delve into this and write this book? This is a a very painful area. Yes, it is. Uh, I've known Laura for quite a while, and listening to her story and talking to her, it's just it would touch your heart, and and, and it's overwhelming with uh, some of the things that she's went through in her life. I think her her problem started as a child as early as the age of three. Uh, she had an older brother who sexually molested her from the time she was three uh, until she was like 12 years old, and she finally got the courage to, to stop it. Until then, uh, just talking with her, she was very afraid. She was afraid to tell her, her family. She was afraid to tell anyone. Uh, she thought that she would, would be blamed for it, and she thought she would be the one to be punished. So she kept quiet. Where uh, most children do that, most children are uh, abused this this way. They won't tell. They keep it inside, and and you just don't realize what's happening. Why do you think? They, why do you think children feel so guilty and won't tell someone? Well, in Laura's case, her brother was so much older than her. Uh, he let her think that he was too old to be punished. He let her think that she was she would get the punishment because he was just too old to be punished, and it frightened her, and she believed that until she just had enough. So she's abused from a very early age and uh, finally confronts, I guess, the brother, and then how does her, where does her life go from there? Well, you would think it would get better, but uh, Laura was raised in, in very poor circumstances. Uh, she lived in um, a home with no indoor plumbing, or, uh, just something that we would condemn, uh, just shacks. Uh, that's, that's the way she was raised. And when she became old enough to date and go out with young boys, you know that the the kind of boys that would want to go out with her would, would be the, the, from the poor society and such. And so she ended up uh, getting date raped. Uh, she was put in the hospital by two boys who uh, drugged her and, uh, and raped her even after uh, she was date raped uh, earlier. Uh, after that, she, uh, she, she got pregnant by, by this guy, and she, she wouldn't marry him because she had been through so much in her own life that she was afraid to marry, so she wouldn't marry him. And she ended up marrying an alcoholic, and the abuse just continued uh, from one kind of abuse to another. It just continued. But she uh, she never gave up. Uh, at one point in time in her life, she'd had enough, though, you know, and, and I don't think she felt like she could go any further. And she did try to end her life at one point in time, uh, but that didn't happen. Uh, she took a bottle of sleeping pills thinking that it would make things better. But she didn't die. Uh, actually, she made it. And from then on, she began a fight, and, and she continued to fight. Now, but, did, but her life really never never improved, you know, a lot. Now, did she have to go it alone, or did she have any support along the way? Laura never had anyone but herself except her uh, younger brother. Now, she had a younger brother uh, named Eddie, and she really kind of depended on him for her support throughout her life. Her uh, sister, she had an older sister, 
that lived with her family growing up, and her sister was like 13, 14 years older than her. And her her sister married, but she wouldn't leave the house. She had seven children and stayed in the house with her parents, which made a total, I think, of, of 13 people in the house with Laura and her family and her parents in this shack. You know, can you imagine just a, a, an old shack with maybe two bedrooms and 13 people piled in, into, into that? And Laura was expected to do all these chores and, and take care of uh of her sister's children, her and her brother Eddie had, was expected to do that, and, and no time for play, no time to be a child, and and with her brother treating her this way, and and all of this, these chores she had to do, she, she was just, you know, just there. It was like she was an outcast in her own family. You say you want readers to understand that anything. Anything is possible, and no matter how bad the circumstance, there is always a way out. Laura somehow came to know that. Yes, she did. She wouldn't give up because after she tried to commit suicide, uh, she had that baby, that little boy, and after she tried to commit suicide, she realized you know, he would be alone. He would have no mother. And so she, she began fighting. Uh, I think she kind of went into a mode of survival. And she uh, did, well, her, her husband was an alcoholic. He wouldn't provide for her and, and the baby the way men usually do. And, and Laura was uneducated. Her mother took her out of school when she was in the sixth grade, just began the seventh. But but through all this, Laura, uh, she did everything she could to try to support her her child and ended up getting pregnant with three other children but she uh put up food uh canning for people on halves you know and she would get half of whatever she she would freeze or put in jars she would get half of that and that's how she provided food for her children uh, she would take all on these odd jobs and just do anything and everything that she could think of to to make a dollar to provide for these children and finally uh, as her children grew older, she uh, began reading their books, their school books. And like I said, she only had a sixth grade education. But she read these school books and, and she, she studied until she could pass her GED and she got a diploma. And uh, she went into nursing school. And before she could finish the nursing school, she was only 34 years old at the time, I think is, is how she was, but she was only 34, I think, and she uh, became very ill, uh, found out that her heart, uh, she had clogged arteries in her heart. And at the age of 34, the doctors didn't even think that was possible, not at this time, back in 1980-something uh, or another. Anyway, she ended up having to go in the middle of her school year uh, having bypass surgery, had five bypasses, and uh, went back to school within two weeks, passed out uh, in the, one of her instructor's arms while she was getting off the elevator, but she didn't go home. She begged the um, instructor to let her stay, and, and after much uh, convincing, they did. Uh, and she continued that nursing school, and she finished, and, and she completed uh, with a high grade and become a nurse and took care of her children. So uh, after that, though, when she when she, when she uh, became very sick, became very very ill and had heart surgery, her husband walked out on her. He left her. So there she was, all alone to raise those children. 
And uh, after she raised those children uh, a little bit, uh, well, her uh, oldest daughter married when she was around 17. She married, and she had three children. Well, she left her children. She abandoned them and left them for Laura to have to raise them. And uh, Laura became ill again. Laura had to go back to the hospital, had... Uh, five more bypasses. The first time, I think she had six bypasses. And the second time, she had five bypasses. But in between these times, these surgeries, this lady had to go back to the hospital continuously and ended up having 11 stents put in. And now she's left to raise her grandchildren with totally alone, totally alone, no one else, no parents, no, no one. Uh, it's just from one bad thing to another. You know, so it's just a tremendous effort on Laura's part. But she she did, does all this, and she never gives up. And she's even at this time she's raising those grandchildren, and uh, she's disabled. She she's not no longer able to to uh, work as a nurse, but she's still trying to raise those grandchildren. Well, you say if a person searches hard and long enough, that person will eventually see some light because things are always changing. Nothing stays the same. That is a quote that I will never forget. Things are never the same. Uh, They're always changing. Like today, you know, we all have struggles. We all have problems in our life. And we look and we think they're so terrible, we think they're so bad, but you can always find someone who is worse off than you are. And if you look today and see, well, I'd say just, I just don't know how I'm going to make it another day. But if you make that next day, it's going to be a little different. And finally, it's going to work its way out of this problem. It may There may be another one facing you, you know, but things are never uh, staying the same. They're always changing and, and it, your life is always changing and, and if you hang in there, there will be some light at the end of the tunnel and God helped Laura to get through uh, the things, you know, she gives him the total credit. He he got her through the horrible life that, that, that she had but there's a reason, you know. Uh, she looks now and she says she knows that she's not meant to have a husband and a loving relationship, she knows what her purpose here is for, and that is to raise her grandbabies now, you know. And, and that's what she lives for now, is to raise those children. How did she overcome anger, uh, revenge against those who were so abusive to her? Well, you know, if we don't forgive, then we, are not, we cannot be forgiven. And that's how she overcame the Lord, if the Lord, she said that if the Lord forgives her, then she has to forgive the others. And you cannot ever forget and wipe it from your memories. And it does, it's devastating and it, and it does stay deep within. But you, you, you can forgive them. You, you can. There is forgiveness within all of us. And we are capable of forgiving most anything if we just open our hearts. You describe your book in three words, The Hidden Face of Laura. You say heartwarming, courage, and inspiring. That's right. Um, if you read the book, you can get into Laura's life as if you were there, and you can see some of the things that that really happened to her, and it will break your heart. Uh, there was one time, Laura never had toys. She never had 
Christmas. She was so poor that she, uh, well, she never got to play or, or, or have a childhood, like I said earlier, but she had a neighbor, a uh, young girl, that brought her a little doll. Laura never had a doll. Laura was five years old. But one of Laura's uh, sister's daughters, one of her children, was two years old, two-year-old baby, and it was a little girl, the only little girl she had. Well, the neighbor brought Laura a baby doll that she was going to throw away, and it just tickled Laura to death. But something she'd always wanted was a little doll. Well, the little girl, that well, the teenage girl, she brought her the doll. She left, and when she left, Laura's mother took the doll from Laura and gave it to her little niece, which was two years old. And Laura, only five, she just stood there and cried. Well, she didn't let them see her cry, but but she ran into the closet, and she hid in the closet, and she fell asleep crying. And uh, when she woke up, she got up and she went outside, and she found the doll's head in one place and the body in another. And it broke her heart. You know, If you read some of the things that happened to Laura, it, it will really touch your heart of, of, of those things that this, this child went through or this young woman went through as, as a child all the way through her life. She was um, pregnant uh, and her alcoholic husband was trying to hurt her oldest child, the one that was not his. He had him under his arm, holding him with one arm, and he was stuffing food in his mouth, trying to make him clean his plate. And Laura couldn't make him put him down. So she picked up an iron skillet and she hit him over the head with that skillet trying to make him put her baby down. And Laura was pregnant at the time. Well, he put her little boy down, but when he did, he picked Laura up and beat her up and threw her in the floor. And and she lost the baby. Uh, just a lot of terrible things like that. He tried, He shot at her and the children and they had to leave in the middle of the night. Big someone to get him some gas so they could get away from him. Just all kinds of horrible, horrible things. And if you read the book, you just can't imagine uh, going through some of these things. You can't imagine how she got through some of these things. But she never gave up, and somehow she got through them. And she, that's right, and she made it. And, and uh, she's happy now with her grandchildren. She's still in bad health, very bad health, uh, just about homebound. Oh from her heart, but uh, she is, is, is happy with her, her grandchildren and happy in the Lord and knows that he got her to this point. Well, Elaine, tell us how to get your book. Well, uh, you can get it through uh, Author House, uh, through any bookstore, or you can ask them uh, to order it, and, and uh, it can uh, be ordered through Author House, through Barnes & Noble and Amazon. Uh, a lot of those websites on the uh, Internet, it can be ordered through those. Well, thank you, Elaine. Thank you so much for being on Author Talk. Well, thank you so much for having me. That was Elaine Mims. She is the author of her book, The Hidden Face of Laura. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Maybe if I write a book, it will be the thing that keeps me alive. Those are the troubled words of a new 16-year-old author with her first thought-provoking book, What Gives? Published by Togi Entertainment. The author kept a diary during her dark teenage times, which turned into a 360-page suicide note 
with a happy ending. Texas Monthly describes teen author Chelsea Marie and her new book, What Gives, in this provocative way. We've plunged from page to page, not because of the young diarist despondency. Depression is not especially attractive or compelling, but because we are fascinated to see that while she is fending off demons on one hand, she is writing verse with the other. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. Readers of What Gives are giving rave reviews. All social scientists, teachers, and students should use this book as a learning tool. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. The American Rock and Roll Countdown with Alex Price. So where were you in the 1970s? Well, this Saturday morning, we're going to flash back to the 70s as we count down the classic hits with the American Rock and Roll Countdown. You'll hear news and information and stories about the artist and what was going on during the specific week that we highlight. So be sure to join us at 9 o'clock Eastern Standard Time this Saturday on Toginet for the American Rock and Roll Countdown. The American Rock and Roll Countdown on Toginet. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, P.S. Don't Tell Your Mother. And the author is Margot Bates, and Margot joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Margot. Hello, how are you today? I'm doing just great, and great to have you on the show. And I'm going to read what you have written of how you'd introduce your book to a friend in, in just a sentence or two. You say, my writing takes a look at a slice of life in Canada's frontier north in the 50s and 60s. Readers say the stories are comical, quirky, and irreverent. They often say they would love to meet Nana Noonan, Maggie Mulvaney, the main characters in my book, P.S. Don't Tell Your Mother. Many say they haven't laughed out loud while reading a book in a long time. Good for you, Margot. It sounds like readers are really enjoying your book. Now, tell us why you wrote it. Well, I used to spend a lot of time telling anecdotes. First of all, let me, you know, we're from a frontier town in northern British Columbia, Canada. We, uh, when I say frontier, we didn't really have a lot of horses and cattle. We had uh, loggers, miners, fishermen, uh, people of uh, Native Indian ancestry. And uh, in the time I'm writing about, there were a lot of people who liked cars and trucks. So we, we sort of have the loggers and the and the uh, the truckers uh, who were two different types coming back and forth and uh, get together on a Saturday night and the town was hopping in a, in a different frontier way than uh, you know the uh, the guns and uh, things that you might think of when you hear think about uh, say the cowboy stories. Uh, the one who had the gun was my actual grandmother, Gran- Nana Noonan. So. Uh, that made for a very interesting time, and uh, she never went out at night. So uh, she did her uh, her hunting, so to speak, during the day. Well, that's a, a real important part of this whole book. This is fiction, but it's based on fact about your grandmother and friends and also these two two communities, right? That's right. When I was 10 years old, my grandmother started writing letters to me because it was. It seemed the way to uh, to do it. We we spent a lot of time uh, together. But uh, when I was ten, she decided for my birthday she was going to get me a uh, 
packet of uh, writing paper and a very pretty pen with turquoise ink because in the 50s, of course, uh, they didn't have fancy pen, colored pens so much. They had ink, so we used to write away, and I, in kind of an innocent way, used to uh, send her letters back and forth. But over the years, we, we corresponded for 35 years. I learned a lot about my grandmother, but a lot about the town of Telqua, which is... Uh, about 850,000 miles north of, of Vancouver, right, uh, which is around the U.S.-Canada border. So it was it was pretty pretty far away, uh, quite remote, and uh, it still is. It's a it's a very remote area. It's a stunningly beautiful area with high mountains and uh, um, rugged wilderness, literally out the back door. And that actually had a lot to do with uh, why my grandmother loved it. And she really uh, was a an avid outdoors person. She she hiked all over the hills, would pick berries in the summer, hunt, hunt for grouse in the winter, and go out on snowshoes in the uh, various various times of the year in the autumn and winter. And she was a crack shot. She taught all the children of Telqua how to shoot and how to shoot responsibly. The big problem was that Nana, she didn't always uh, do the old uh, story of do as I say, not do as I do. And uh, as a kid, it was very interesting to watch her deal with, um, she took a, a kind of a slice of uh, not accepting prejudice, except uh, we're Irish-Canadian, and my grandmother, Nana Noonan, had an Irish temper like nobody's business, and it did get her into some trouble. Um, the main person that she had some trouble with was uh, a, a poor, hapless fellow who just happened to uh, be a Jehovah's Witness. And... Um, our family is uh, Church of England or staunch Anglican in Canada. And uh, my grandmother uh, told this fellow when he came to her door one day, please don't come back. I have a religion. I don't want you to come come to my yard anymore. Uh, they had quite a big yard, uh, which didn't seem to help the poor guy. But uh, he used to come anyway because that is basically part of his religion and uh the fact that he presented himself on my grandmother's doorstep, rain, snow, sleet, shine, didn't matter. Every Saturday he came, and uh, over the years, my grandmother just uh, took a bit of an exception to him coming to her door. And I think, actually, she kind of liked him in a way, but uh, she just wouldn't put up with what one very serious part of his character, and that was that she was best friends with a native Indian woman named Tai Mary, who lived... At the, in the Indian Reserve, about a few miles out of Telqua. And uh, he didn't like Tai Mary, and that was it. My grandmother was on his case from day one, and uh, she just wouldn't let up. And so as a child, I observed this, and that's what the basis of the story is. It's a story of prejudice and how one woman, Nana Noonan, very strong-willed, uh, took on this one fellow and... Uh, stuck up for her best friend and basically it's a story of friendship and uh, and of how one person deals with prejudice in a very unique and uh, Irish temper way. Now Maggie, uh, Nana's 12-year-old granddaughter, now is Maggie you? Maggie is me and uh, quite a few of my cousins and a friend or two thrown in for good measure. <laughs> Uh, mainly to protect myself, I guess. I'm not quite sure. But, uh, uh, I think the main thing was that our family name is Mulvaney uh, for, on my dad's side. So I 
figured it might as well get an Irish name in there uh, while we're while I'm at it. And uh, it is me quite a bit, but it really is a, it's a compilation of a lot of uh, people that I know. And uh, uh, I'm in the current current time writing my second book, and and uh, Maggie takes a bit more of a role in uh, in the I guess be- becoming not me, more like a couple of friends that I had that were much more brave than I am, so, uh, or, or ever was in those days, so uh, that's another story, but um, at this point, it's probably as close to me as um, I'm going to let it be, how's that, so the, the character of Maggie Mulvaney. Well, that's a, a, a good uh, explanation <laughs> and testimony, I guess. Uh, trying to keep yourself off the hook a little bit anyway, right? Ever so slightly. (laughs) Now, she lives in Terrace. Now, is Terrace and Telqua a lot alike, or are they kind of separate, unique communities? They're very unique communities, and they're very similar. Uh, The similarity, first, is that they're both in northern British Columbia. Telqua is an interior town. It is set in the beautiful Bulkley Valley, which is uh, farming, uh, ranches, a lot of it, much drier than Terrace, which is on the coastal, in the coastal mountains. Um, however, in the, in the beautiful Bulkley Valley, there's a mountain called Hudson's Bay Mountain, which stands, uh, I think, seven, a little bit over 7,000 meters, and it is an amazing sight because you can't really miss it any, pretty well anywhere where you're driving. You can see this. There's also some other spectacular mountain ranges in behind the uh, the town of Telqua. It's got a uh, three rivers that come into it, uh, or three, sorry, pardon me, three bridges, two rivers, and um, lots of fishing, lots of uh, outdoor life. Uh, people love to go hiking, and uh, you know, we get winter there. It's cold, and uh, get a nice summer, and much more dry climate. Terrace is 150 miles to the west of Telqua, going towards the coast in northern British Columbia. And it has a very narrow river valley with the Skeena River going pretty well right through the middle of the town. If you, uh, if you kind of break it down, the, the reason the name of Terrace came up is that it's actually on three levels. And uh, the third level just behind that within about five to ten miles are mountains and so it's it's in the coast mountain range of, uh, of British Columbia and uh, it's pretty spectacular. The uh, road between Terrace and uh, Telqua when I was a kid was only partially paved and it wasn't until the late mid-60s that we actually got paving all the way through. So it made for uh, for interesting times driving because uh, you bounced around and you came out to kind of dusty at one end or the other. So. And then, of course, there's Constable Reams of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, and he and Nana have hit it off. In uh, in a way that I don't think Constable Reams ever thought he would. Uh, he he became one of Nana's closest friends over the years. Uh, but the first few years that he went to see her, it was that he used to get calls from either the uh, the Jehovah's Witness or uh, some member of the town or more usually from Nana herself who would phone him and he lived in, or was based in Smithers, which is a then sort of larger community 
Um, I mean, we're talking Telk was 852 people, and that kind of was a composite of the entire area, so certainly not a big place. Uh, Smithers was bigger, and um, the RCMP office was there, so he was the he was posted to the the Royal Canadian Mounted Police Detachment, and uh, he was the guy that took the calls. And I think that everybody just handed over to him because that probably was, uh, you know, they they knew that he actually really liked doing it, and he'd come up and try to settle settle the score. I think really what Constable Reams did best was he kind of leveled the situation out. He would come over after my grandmother, Nana, or maybe the Jehovah's Witness person or someone from town would phone to say, you better come and break this up. Uh, it's a it's a situation where, uh, you know, he, he is getting to know his way between the towns better than he ever imagined. And um, he tries to see both sides. But um, along with the rest of the townsfolk of Telqua, if he was a betting man, he'd place the check, his paycheck on uh, on Nana and stick around to see the show. And uh, unfortunately, the only way he can see Nana is when she or the Jehovah's Witness calls him to uh, with a complaint and uh, of some sort of injustice from either side. And uh, he he was uh, again is a composite of about four or five RCM policemen that I knew and um, that our family knew over the years. But my grandmother really did call called him quite a bit because she was always complaining about something. She wasn't, it, it, it's interesting to note, she wasn't a righteous person. She was a person who my granddad said was all she saw things was black and white. And my husband would probably attest that there might be some of that in me. Um, I'm certainly never learned to shoot, which is probably a good thing. And uh, I never really learned to uh, to do much other than try to stick up for people, and I certainly got that from my grandmother. But um, to get back to Constable Reams, I, I went up and down the phone book and chose that name out of the Smithers phone book. And I hope that there's no Reams family. I think they would probably like to have Constable in their family if they didn't have one. But uh, he is a co- definitely a composite of all the policemen that we know. And uh, he his, his character is very important in the overall story, but it's also important to know that there's always some really nice policeman in your neighborhood or or your town that is there for everybody, except he does kind of in deep inside uh, get a take a shine to one person, and in particular, this constable uh, really, really cared for my grandmother for Nana Newman. Margot, we have just a couple of minutes left. Let's talk about a very serious side to this book in in some ways, and yet there's, I'm sure there's some humorous uh, anecdotes in this, but life is tough in the North, as you say. Life was tough. It was very tough. Uh, you know, the weather and the animals and even the next-door neighbors are very unforgiving. Uh, working in logging camps, fishing, prospecting, mining, um, well, I mean, in, in the humorous side, even going to the local beer parlor was uh, was kind of uh, dangerous on a Saturday night. But but most things and, and some of the people weren't always as they appeared. And um, what would happen there is that everybody thought, well, probably everybody did know much of what you were about and much of, of what you were uh, doing, except nobody ever really knew 
all of the reasons people reacted the way they did. And, and that's what the story is about, of, of how even though people had an idea that the very serious and, and very prevalent thing that's, that still goes on in, uh, in towns well, around the world, but, but um, particularly in the North, there was a lot of prejudice. And, and, and in the book, um, it talks about the day-to-day life and it also talks about how prejudice was permeated that no one necessarily took a stance. And that kind of was where the problem was. And uh, that made it tough, too, because people just sort of let things happen around. And, and uh, in Telco, though, in those days, we didn't have TV and sporadic radio uh, because uh, it, was, it was remote. We got a newspaper once a week. So the townsfolk needed entertainment and and some of the entertainment was at the uh, expense of a lot of people within the area but also i mean the the elements uh, you know that it it is very tough to be in logging it's very tough to be in mining there's storms of fishermen people still have these things but in those days people were getting injured and killed and all sorts of things just uh, doing their day-to-day job and uh, it, it was not an easy place to live in in many ways just because of the uh, the conditions and, and how the entire area is uh, was remote. I mean, it takes about 20 hours, uh, 15 to 20 hours to drive from the area of Telqua Terrace down to Vancouver. So, uh, you know, it's it's far away from, from any big city and... Uh, you had to make your own fun, and uh, you stuck together, and you also uh, watched the goings-on of your town. Maybe a little uh, took a little longer to uh, react, unless something really, really tragic happened, and then everybody pulled together. And uh, that that is one of the things about the North that uh, is is wonderful. It is very stunning, and it is very uh, a very very unique part of the world. We have a different language. We have a very unique take on things. If you don't have a sense of humor you should probably stay inside because a lot of times you have to laugh at uh, what goes on. Margot, tell us how to get your book. You can get it through um, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, um, Chapters Indigo in the bookstores. You can order it online through my website, www.margobates.com. That's M-A-R-G-O-B-A-T-E-S. And um, there's so on on my website, you can also you can get it in audiobook as well as uh, the traditional book, and uh, soon to be on ebook. So the the fun thing is you can uh, you can listen to Nana and get to meet them in in person. I I narrated the book because I I was told that uh, I wanted someone with an Irish accent, and the fellow says, "Well, you sound kind of Irish," and I said, "Oh." I don't really think I do. And he said, well, can you tell me what your grandmother sounded like? And uh, so my producer actually uh, was, was kind enough to uh, to say for me to do it. And I think it worked out fairly well because people who've read the book and have now listened to the audio version so say that they're actually enjoying meeting Nana and Maggie in person. Well, Margot, we appreciate you being on Author Talk. Very interesting story. Thank you, Steve. I really appreciated uh, the opportunity to chat with you today. That was Margot Bates. She is the author of her book, P.S. Don't Tell Your Mother.